Hello, viewers, on episode 349 of the Actual Astronomy Podcast. I'm Chris, and joining me is Shane. We are amateur astronomers who love looking up at the night sky, and this podcast is for anybody, every, anybody, everybody who likes going out under the stars. <laughs> uh, let's see. Yeah, we were gonna, we were just gonna start talking about astronomy and not record, but we thought, hey, what the heck? Let's record an episode with us talking about uh, binary viewers and astronomy. So you were asking a couple of questions, Shane. I'll ask you that same question first. Did, did you get out observing last night? No, I did not. I was pretty disappointed with the whole weekend. Um, I was fully anticipating to be in Grasslands National Park East Block for the weekend for uh, some new moon or very close to new moon observing. And, uh, you know, I spent the week slowly getting all of my gear together, uh, Thursday night into Friday morning, packed my vehicle. Um, but Thursday afternoon, the forest fire smoke really set in and it, mm -hmm. you know, I, I just had hopes that it would eventually leave, but it didn't. And, uh, Friday, Saturday were very, very smoky and the air quality index was, uh, quite high. It was 10 it was plus. Not, yeah, it was not good. Um, and, you know, I was out, uh, Friday night at about midnight, uh, it started to like the smoke had dissipated enough and some of the clouds started to disappear that, you know, I could see a few stars. Um, and then last night, um, I just didn't stay up late enough and, and, uh, didn't bother doing any observing, but in full of disappointment, uh, on my side, uh, were you able to get out? Yeah, I, uh, I'm, you know, of course, way out here in the in the country or, you know, I don't know, 45 minutes outside of the city, not too far out in the middle of nowhere or anything like that. But just just out here and at my dark sky location, I, I guess I call it, though Bill Weir was a little disappointed when I sent him these, like, there's other places around. I'm like, well, yeah, you know, we're not, we're not like living on desolate island here or anything like that, but uh yeah, I was able to get out and do some binocular observing because I was surprised it cleared out enough. I could see just a hint of the Milky Way, unaided eye, and I thought, huh, I'll grab my binoculars and try out the observatory. Give that a shot. The walls are up now and the roof skeleton frame is on, but it's rolled off. My builder's rolling it off so that I can go up in there and set up telescopes or binoculars or do whatever I want if we get a good night. So it's uh, kind of neat to be able to give that a trial run. But I was able to see like the double cluster unaided eye and through binoculars look pretty good. I could see M31 unaided eye. It was better in the north towards the south. I could see the Milky Way only running down in as far as Scutum and below that. Like I couldn't even see hardly any stars in Sagittarius and I could just uh, make out Antares and and the stars of uh, Ophiuchus. But I saw, I was looking at some of the globular clusters in Ophiuchus and Scutum Star Cloud and M11 and looked at the Lagoon Nebula and Triffid. It was pretty muted though. There was still tons of that smoke uh, kicking around the upper atmosphere and you could see the light kind of reflecting off it from, from the city. But it was uh, just uh, nice to be able to get out for uh, 15 or 20 minutes. Yeah, yeah, that's awesome. Uh, if there's a silver lining for my failed travel attempts, it's that I'll, uh, I'm hoping to join you guys in grasslands West good. block, uh, this coming weekend. So that, uh, I'm excited for that. Hopefully we have good conditions. Yeah. I'm hoping you can as well. It's always a lot of fun to get together and observe me. We could even record a short show down there or something and mm -hmm. yeah, be, uh, 
be fun. We could call it the showdown because we're down further south. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. yeah. I, I like it. And the, the observatory is coming along. I'm learning. We're learning mm-hmm. lots, mm-hmm. learning mm-hmm. lots. Got the roof rolling. I think I sent you the video on that. So that's pretty exciting. Yeah. Yeah. The, uh, the photos and the video that you sent, uh, it's really looking good. It's, it's starting to take shape and look like an observatory. Uh, it'll be wonderful once it's completed. Yeah. I definitely learning. We're learning a few things. There's definitely things we would do a little bit different. I really wish I had had about another meter or two of space or maybe Mm -hmm. like in feet, like five or six more feet of width on the hilltop. Cause I definitely really would have preferred to go 10 by 10, but we, we just crammed it in as much as we could. And you'll see, like there was some bushwhacking that had to take place to get the, uh, the support system up for the gantry or the, the area that the roll-off roof goes on. And had we gone 10 by 10, we would have had to go back almost another meter and go ahead another foot. And it just would have eaten up like so much of the hilltop and really, I don't know what it would be like to go back any further than we did. So just one of those things. Also, I would have ordered the rails sooner because we end up losing about eight inches of, of rollability or, or back roll. I go, we can go two feet back from the edge of the observatory now, but we could have gone back another seven or eight inches. Uh, we just end up with rails. I guess they, they leave a few more inches onto those rails from Alico. So we uh, we probably would have gone with a slightly further rollback, uh, just just added another, like I said, seven or eight inches onto the uh, gantry would have been that would have been nice just to have the roof back just to scooch further. But it's not not a big deal. Still working out some of the logistics with the pier, but it's yeah, it's slowly coming together. So this is the roof week coming up this week. So excited to get it sort of sealed in and then. Uh, and then probably the following week is the week that we're going to finish the pier and finish uh, all the other little little bits and, and pieces. So should be an August, August long weekend should be the official telescope mounting, I hope. That's the, hmm. that's the plan anyway. So yeah, it awesome. takes a while though. Oh, for sure. Yeah, yeah. Are you insulating it? No, hmm. no insulation. Okay. No. Yeah. Because that'll, well, that'll oh, just sorry. keep keep the heat inside. I know there's like a lot of debates on whether to insulate it or not. And there's all this other sage advice, but uh, I watched, there's a really good video on building roll-offs by Richard Berry, who's built an awful lot of roll-offs and he's a well-known telescope builder and amateur astronomer. And he kind of wrote the book and I bought it. It's a real Mm -hmm. old book on building observatories sort of in this like old style and that's how we're building it it's like sort of the og way with some of the new finangled equipment that he recommends and uh, it seems to be working good for example we're only using four wheels roof is about 400 pounds right now and you can roll it with two fingers oh nice yeah in fact it rolls a little too well so we're trying to figure out a way to sort of break it a little bit on either ends because we're going to put some rubber bumpers on or something because even if you just lay your hand on it and kind of think about the direction you want it to roll it will roll in that direction or even if there's a light breeze it will uh, it will roll like I'll we'll have to when I open it we'll have to put a mechanism to secure it or keep it from rolling uh back over the observatory because it will like it it will just 
continue to, to roll. And when you push it off, you don't want to give it any more force than, you know, what you would to open a cabinet door, for example, or open a drawer in your kitchen that maybe is a heavier drawer with a lot of utensils. You don't want to use any more force than that. Hmm. Yeah, this is, uh, this is awesome. I'm excited to see it get to the completion state and see how it works when you get the telescope in there and start using it. Yeah, yeah, I'll be eager to to get it finished and you know like have you and Mike out and be able just to be able to set up and, and observe whenever. And it's really nice to have the light blocking capability as well. Because even though I'm in a reasonably dark spot, it's magnitude 6.3, or I guess it's like a Bortle three and a half or not quite four. And it is a populated area, you know, there's probably, I don't know, maybe a thousand or two thousand people that live sort of in this lake valley of of sorts but it's just enough that somebody somewhere always has a light on and even when it's it's dark and and clear that light can can be annoying so it's nice just to be able to have the scope uh sheltered from uh from those ambient lights that are around even last night i could tell inside the observatory you i could sense that i was getting like that uh really big bump in dark adaption being in there for 15 or 20 minutes, you could tell like it was causing me to be more dark adaptive, which I hadn't quite expected as much, but I guess it does make sense. Hmm. Well, that's good. Already giving you some positive returns. Yeah. Trying to figure out what color to paint it now. So Hmm. whether it's going to be a light color, might go with an extremely light blue or white or a very light, like yellow or like a like a cream color sorts, but uh, yeah, that'll be the fun bit. Right on. All right. Let's chat about BinoViewers. So I, I only have limited experience with these things, but when I, I went to my very first star party, it was, I think it was still called Nova East even back then, which is the one they do in Nova Scotia now. Uh, but at the time it was up in Fundy National Park in New Brunswick. I still think they do one there, but I don't think it's called, Nobis, I think it's called something else, but it's a great spot way up on a mountain of sorts, like an Appalachian mountain, probably, you know, you're maybe up, I don't know how high it is, maybe four, three or 400 feet above the ocean level, maybe not quite that high, but right sort of at the peak of this large hill, you had uh, like an old scout camp and they had like this building and people would go there each year and set up their scopes. Maybe there'd be 40, maybe 50 people that would show up to it. My first year uh, that I went, somebody set up a 10-inch McCassigrain with a bino viewer and pointed at Jupiter. And I just, I was astounded at, at the detail. It was something mm-hmm. I don't even think I ever even heard of a bino viewer before. It was, I'd only been doing astronomy for maybe uh, three or four years at that point. And uh, looking in, it was just astounding the level of detail that uh, that you could you could see on Jupiter and a friend of mine had one for his daub, but he never really used it that much on the daub. And I thought about a binoscope myself more than a viewer. but uh, where, where do you want to get started with this, Shane? Maybe just, do you want to just explain what a viewer is over yeah. binoculars or sure. scopes and stuff? So, so yeah, a viewer is a separate piece of gear that just goes into your telescope uh, focuser or diagonal. Um, and it basically switches your telescope from mono viewing into uh, two eye viewing or bino viewing. 
and uh, you know you can you can swap it between telescopes or just go back to mono viewing. It it uh, it provides some flexibility. Nice, and it the bino viewer though it does it reduce the amount of light that's coming through because it it does split the light like like how does the physical thing work exactly is it because it it sort of inserts into either the telescope diagonal or into the focuser and then the light is coming into this from the instrument and then how, how does that work is it like a prism in there that's splitting the light or do you know how that works yeah, so there's there's two types of bino viewers that are out there. There's sort of the traditional bino viewer, which uses like a beam splitter, um, and then either prisms or mirrors to bounce the light up into your eye. Uh, and then there's a, another one or another style. And I think this one is a little bit newer. Um, I think it's only been out maybe for the last five or so years, but I could be wrong. And it's known as a linear bino viewer. In fact, I think Mark Radici has one of these ones. Okay. And um I don't know exactly how the linear ones work, but I believe you're getting um, kind of maximum light into each eye, but there's some trade-offs there as well. But I'll, I think I'll stick mostly to the more traditional style of bino viewer because that's what I have and it's what I know. Um, so yeah, there is a beam splitter that takes all of the light coming from your telescope and basically sends 50% of it one direction and 50% of it the other direction. Um, and, and essentially then each eye is only receiving about 50% of the light that it normally would when you're mono viewing. Mm-hmm. Um, now, you know, at first that sounds poor, you know, you want as much light as possible. Um, but the, there's a, a summation factor that I'm not going to get into a lot of detail about. I think people could maybe research that if they're more interested, but the brain combines both images that your eyes are seeing. And the result is a slightly dimmer image than when you're mono viewing, but not 50% less. Um, you know, you can still see a lot of detail and a lot of, uh, brightness with a bino viewer. Um, and, uh, you know, the part of this summation factor is when your brain is combining both images that your eyes are seeing, um, there's a little bit of a, like a a cleansing almost of the image. It's almost like your brain starts to sort of reject some of the noise or, or, or aberrations or, or sort of seeing issues like, uh, uh, atmosphere issues, um, that one eye just can't really ignore, And, um, you know, this is one of the, one of the benefits, and I think we'll get into some of the other benefits too, but one of the benefits of bino viewing, uh, particularly with the planets is that having two eyes observing does allow almost for like a a slight uptick in seeing quality. Um, there's been multiple times when I've gone out to observe Jupiter and, um, like with one eye, the seeing is not great. Uh, and, and by not great, I mean, like sometimes I can't even see the Brown, uh, uh, equatorial bands, uh, of cloud. Um, but I put in a bino viewer and all of a sudden I can see them and it's, you know, again, the brain is sort of rejecting, I, I guess, like the, those brief moments of poor seeing and, and, and promoting kind of those good moments, uh, of seeing, and the result is that, um, like I said, you seem to get a little bit of an uptick in the seeing conditions when bino viewing. Nice. And I'm just just sort of thinking about this. Uh, just sort of thinking about this here. 
So you, so it splits the light. So you lose 50%. I think I've even read that people get between 20 and 40% bump by going to. So it's really mitigated the, the fact that you uh, are, are splitting that light. There's there's another couple of things that occur, Shane, and and boy, I'm not sure if you if you just touched on this or not. But the, with some of these binary viewers, don't you need to use a Barlow in uh, in the optical path in order to get them to focus? And I know you've had to do yeah. some work with your scopes in order to make sure that uh, you could use a binary viewer with, with them. Do you want to just sort of address uh, the challenge with with getting a binary scope or binary viewer to focus in a telescope? Yeah, for sure. So that is one of the downsides is typically in order to get a bino viewer to focus, you need to use a Barlow. And why I'm saying that's like a downside is you then lose the ability to have low power, wider fields of view. Um, and the reason why a Barlow is often required is a bino viewer adds an awful lot of uh, light path to your telescope. And where this becomes an issue is a telescope is designed to focus, um, you know, if we talk about refractors, Chris, um, the, the telescope maker will design the length of the optical tube to reach focus with a standard diagonal, uh, at the, you know, in the focuser and a standard eyepiece attached. Um, when you add a bino viewer, your, your bino viewer probably is going to take up anywhere from 125 millimeters to maybe, I don't know, I'm going to guess about 150 millimeters, uh, to that focal point or, or to the light path of your telescope. Um, so now without any modifications to your telescope, when you just add a bino viewer, you cannot rack the focuser in far enough to achieve focus on most telescopes uh, because you know of how long the light path is now. The eyepieces are essentially just too far out to reach focus. So you add a bar low and you can overcome that. Um, now, the other thing you can do is some telescopes are bino viewer friendly, meaning like you can take out um, sometimes a piece of the optical tube itself. They just unscrew. Uh, sometimes it's just removing some other adapters, um, and then you can use the bino viewer uh, natively without any type of Barlow. Um, the way you you test for this, um, just put your telescope, you can do this test during the daytime. In fact, it's probably better to do during the daytime, and you can even do it indoors. Um, you, you need to measure where that um, focal point is for your telescope. So uh, you put your telescope on the mount, uh, put the focuser, rack the focuser all the way in, and then have somebody shine a light through your telescope. So, you know, at the main objective, just shine a light in there and then use a, a piece of cardboard if you want, or a piece of paper. And you just move that paper out from your focuser until you get a, a perfectly crisp circle. Um, that is how much light path you have to play with. So measure that distance. And then that tells you, um, again, how much, how much focal path, uh, um, is at play. I can't remember what my TSA is. Um, but anyway, once you have that established, you then have to get the light path of all of the components that will be used for bino viewing. So, you know, typically you would start with your diagonal. Um, now the best place to get this information is, is the maker's websites, um, so the Bader uh, Zeiss prism that I use has 36 millimeters of light path in it. So that's part of it. 
Uh, I have a Bader quick to quick attach adapter, which is 11 millimeters. Uh, so now I'm sitting at uh, 37 and then my Bino viewer is 137 millimeters. Um, and I have a couple more Bader adapters that attach to my focuser, which are about 10 millimeters. So you add all of that up. If it exceeds the measurement that you did with, you know, the paper light experiment, you're going to have to use a Barlow. If it doesn't exceed, um, then you're probably okay to use that Bino viewer natively without any sort of, um, uh, Barlow, you know, reducing your, your field of view. Sorry, sorry, just, just to, uh, get back to your setup. Are you using a Barlow in yours or, or did you sort of work through all that so that you don't have to use the Barlow? I, with my TSA 102, I am not using a Barlow or OCS. I'm using the Bino viewer natively. Um, and that's one of the big reasons why I wanted the TSA 102 is because with, um, with using a couple of beta adapters on the focuser, uh, I'm able to shorten the light path enough that everything is, uh, it, it works great. Now my TAC 76 DCU, I am not able to achieve focus without a Barlow. So in that telescope, I do use uh, a Barlow if I'm going to use the Bino viewer. So with your setup that you have now in the TSA uh, 102, the four inch, uh, and it's like F8, I think it's like plus or 0.1, something like that. Um, but with your four inch refractor and the Bino viewer in, what are your lowest power eyepieces and what's your widest field with the Bino viewer? Do you know off the top of your head? Yeah. So uh, just about any Bino viewer you buy will be restricted to inch and a quarter. So essentially with my Bino viewer in there, I can use the 24 millimeter pan optics to get the widest field of view possible with inch and a quarter. Um, so I can't remember what that is. 1.8 degrees, maybe I can't okay. remember. I'd have to double, I, I would have to go do the math. Yeah. So eight, eight, 16. Yeah. Something like that. Cause it'd be, is it 16 magnet? No, it must be more than 16 magnification it must be like, um, 32 magnification in 800 millimeter focal length. So if they are 68, then that would give you like 2.1, maybe 2.2, oh, okay. so, yeah. something yeah. like that. I'm just, I'm just like, yeah, just spitball. doing it in my head. Yeah. yeah. Uh, that's, that's interesting. That's not, that's not so bad. And with like the lowest power eyepiece you could use in that, which would be like a 40, that would be 20, which would give you, um, you know, you might get uh three and a third degree field of view with uh, uh, the lowest power mono viewing eyepiece. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So it's about um, a degree smaller. Yeah. Okay. What, one other thing though, I should mention is the Bino viewer that I have is, is somewhat unique. Most Bino viewers once, uh, so there's the beam splitter at kind of the front of it, if you will. Um, and then it splits that light and it hits prisms. Um, now prisms induce, uh, some aberrations in there and any Bino viewer that uses prisms, uh, typically will need what they call an OCS or, you know, depending on the maker, they have their own version or, or naming, uh, for it, but an OCS is, is an optical correction system. And not only does the OCS provide kind of that Barlow functionality to achieve focus, it also provides some correction for the aberrations caused by the prisms. 
So it's mm -hmm. almost like you need to use it if you want the best view. Now, with that aside, the Bino Viewer that I have, it's it's known as a CZAS, uh, uh, which is um, an acronym, C-Z-A-S. And that stands for Carl Zeiss uh, Apochromatic Super Sharp Bino Viewer. Holy cow. Yeah, yeah. It's quite it's quite the, these uh, guys work for the military or something? Yeah, no kidding. The, the advantage of this Bino Viewer is that it's it doesn't use prisms. It uses mirrors. Uh, so there are no aberrations uh, introduced uh, that the prisms would bring in. So the CZAS, you can use without any kind of optical correction mm. and have a really you know crisp, clear view, uh, mostly free of aberration. About how much does something like that set you back? Uh, I should have looked that up. Um, Even so there's a, there's a person, I, I forget uh, where he is. It might be Croatia. Uh, Dennis is his name and, and he's quite an active poster on cloudy nights. Uh, and he's one of the, uh, one of the two or three sort of bino viewer gurus. Uh, he, he just, he, he does a lot of bino viewing and he posts an awful lot of his experiences and he, uh, he sells these vinyl viewers and I believe they're probably around 1500 us dollars. Um, certainly not a cheap piece of gear. Um, and there's certainly a lot more affordable vinyl viewers out there. Um, one of the more popular ones is the Bader max bright twos. Uh, I think they're around 800 us dollars, uh, about half the cost. They get really, really good reviews. Um, in fact, uh, Bill Paoloni, um, did an extensive review uh, comparing both of them, the CZAS to the Max Bright twos, and he felt that they were exceptionally close. Uh, I think he gave the CZAS uh, the CZAS <laughs> um, a a slight advantage, but you know he he never goes out and says you know you should buy this one or that one, but he certainly implies that it's not worth twice the price. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Uh, I feel like, you know, we're getting into some of the, the downsides more than the upsides, but maybe the other, other downside is regarding the doubling up of eyepieces. You mentioned having uh, two panoptic 24 millimeters, and then I know you've been collecting some uh, other sets of eyepieces. What, what's sort of a good recommended set for, for people if they're getting started in this? And do you have any comments on the fact that you have to buy uh, two of all eyepieces to use it? Yeah. Yeah. That, you know, again, is another downside. You're, you're doubling up, like you mentioned. Um, one other downside that comes or, or plays a factor in the eyepiece choices, but the other downside is the weight. Uh, you're adding a lot of weight to the back end of your telescope, which could cause balance problems. Now, if you're also using heavy eyepieces, that just compounds the issue. Um, so what I would recommend if you're interested in bino viewing is, um, just get plossels. Um, you know, you could go 32 millimeter, 20 or 25, somewhere in that range. And then about a 10 to 12, uh, millimeter pair, mm -hmm. um, you know, plossels are, uh, far, far less or far, uh, far easier to afford than say some of the wider field pan optics. Um, they're light. And the other thing that is an advantage of bino viewing is the, um, the, like the scale of the view. Now, a lot of times when you're looking through say 50 millimeter field or sorry, 50 degree field of view eyepieces, like a plossal, they seem a little tight. You know, the field of view seems a little restrictive. Um, but using 50 mil or 50 degrees, uh, with a bino viewer, 
is very expansive. It just, the Bino viewer changes the whole experience of observing. Um, so I find 50 millimeters to be very sufficient actually. Why do I keep saying millimeters? 50 degrees. Uh, yeah. <laughs> very, very, uh, very comfortable, very nice viewing. Um, so that's what I would recommend. And, uh, the other options, uh, you know, you could do orthos. Um, I really like using 0.965 inch orthos with my bino viewer, because again, they're super light. Um, they provide really crisp views. And even though the field of view is a little tight through the bino viewer, it just doesn't feel like that. Yeah. Um, and then if you want to get into the wide fields, um, you want, you want eyepieces that are not uh, large physically, um, because if they're too big physically, uh, they may not uh, have enough space on the bino viewer without, you know, kind of touching each other or, or colliding. Um, so some good eyepieces for wide field bino viewing would be like the Panoptics for sure. They work well. Uh, the Nikon Nav SWs are really nice. Um, Pentax had uh, a couple of, um, what were they? The XF uh, eyepieces an 8.5 mm -hmm. and a 12.5 or something like that. Um, those are also quite nice for uh, bino viewing. They're, they're small, they're light, and, and they just work well. All right. So what are some uh, advantages of using the, the bino viewer for you anyway, Shane? How, how do you use it and why is it your sort of uh, weapon of choice? The number one reason for me is the relaxation. Um when, when I'm mono viewing, I can only look at an object, uh, for a certain amount of time before I have to blink, or I just have to give my eye a little bit of a break. And by the, you know, as this plays out over the course of an, of an observing session, there's been some nights where I have to shut down observing just because like, I can't do my, like kind of close one eye and keep the other eye open. Uh, in fact, it even gets to a point sometimes where I'm using my hand to keep my non-observing eye closed. <laughs> like I'm holding my eyelid down, uh, in order to continue mono viewing, um, with bino viewing, you, you can look at the same object for hours, uh, without really taking your eyes away from the bino viewer. So it's, it extends my observing sessions. Um, and because I'm able to stay at the eyepiece longer, uh, I believe I see more, um, either you get those, you know, uh, particularly with planetary observing, if you're at the eyepiece more, you're going to catch those moments of good seeing more frequently. So you're going to, uh, likely see more detail just as a result of that. Um, but there's almost like, we've talked about this before, Chris, um, your eyes and your brain, you know, it almost is like your brain is sort of stacking images. Um, and the more you look at an object, sometimes the more you see detail. Well, when you're using a bino viewer, um, you, 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 again, you can be there for an hour looking at one object without any discomfort at all. And, um, you know, in my mind, I, I see more. So that's the biggest reason. Um, other reasons are, and, and I mentioned one earlier, it, it does seem to kind of improve seeing just a touch. Um, I wouldn't say it's revolutionary. It's not, it's not going to be like a atmospheric corrector, <laughs> but, um, you know, I, I think you're able to see a little bit better in, in less than ideal conditions. Mm -hmm. 
Um, some people talk about the, the 3D aspect of using two eyes, particularly with planets and the moon. Um, this one doesn't jump out as me or jump out for me as much as what I've read, but there certainly is something to that. Um, when you're, when you're looking at very high contrast, high detail objects, uh, like say Jupiter, Mars, the moon, um, it, it really is something else with two eyes. Um, part of it is that comfort, but part of it is just the, the way you're able to take that image in. Uh, you know, for the most part, we, you know, we all have two working eyes and it's just the way I think we're meant to see the world. Um, and, you know, to take that and, and, you know, see the night sky through a telescope with two eyes, it just, uh, it just works so well for me. Cool. So let's just see, uh, what's like, what's the percentage of like using the bino viewer and using mono, uh, viewing eyepieces, uh, what's your ratio? of one to the other right now? Um, it's almost exclusively bino viewing. Mm. Um, the only time I'm not bino viewing is if it's a real quick session, uh, I might just set up a telescope with a singular eyepiece. Um, the other time when I'm not bino viewing is with my H alpha solar observing. Um, and I need to, I need to change this because if you read any of the bino viewing forums, most people will say the most impressive uh, uh, gain or advantage a bino viewer will provide is with hydrogen alpha observing. The reason why I'm not doing it there is I just haven't been able to, I haven't spent enough time to get it to focus with my hydrogen alpha telescopes, but I, I just need to spend an afternoon to do that. Um, you know, one other thing too, I should just mention about the advantages that I don't think I've really touched on. Uh, I mentioned that there's like a scale increase for the field of view, like 50 degrees feels expansive, but there's also an image scale increase, um, like using a lower magnification on the planets, um, they just appear larger. Uh, and because that image scale increases, it again, just provides, a, a, an opportunity to resolve detail, uh, probably a little easier than mono viewing, um, and just helps with that overall experience. Nice. Why not just get a binoscope, Shane? You know, when I was going down this path, I considered a binoscope quite heavily. Um, I, in fact, I think you even remember probably I was almost about to hit that buy button for one of the APM binoscopes. And what really turned my decision uh, is, is the versatility of a bino viewer. Um, you know, number one, well, let me talk about binoscopes just for a second. Um, assuming you're going with like a refractor style binoscope, um, they're large and it changes everything about your observing in terms of you need a bigger mount, you probably need a more robust tripod, um, and the whole, you know, setup and takedown and transportation, all of that kind of stuff changes a little bit because of uh, how much bigger everything is. And, um, you know, that was a bit of a turnoff. So I basically had to replace all of my gear if I wanted to do this. Um, and I didn't really love that. So the versatility that a bino viewer brings is it just works with all of your existing telescopes. Um, so that was a huge plus, uh, another big benefit to me is if I'm out bino viewing, like, you know, if we go to grasslands, certainly I'm bringing my bino viewer, but there might be, uh, 
an object or a period of time where I want the widest field of view possible. Well, within minutes, I can change my bino viewing telescope to mono viewing with big two inch eyepieces and get those maximum fields of view. Um, so that was really what sealed it for me is the flexibility. You know, I, I can use it with any telescope and then I can quickly not use it and just have, uh, you know, big wide field views. Nice. So let's see, what would be a good bino viewer or, or maybe some options for bino viewers and eyepieces for people to start with if, if they don't want to go right to the Zeiss? Because I think you had other ones before you went to the model that you have. That's right. Yeah. I started, uh, I had a William optic bino viewer, which a lot of people start with. It's a nice little set. You know, it comes with two eyepieces. I think they're 20 millimeter or something like that. It comes with that Barlow slash OCS. It really is everything you need out of the box to get going. Um, so that's certainly an option. And then I, then I had a, uh, a Dankmeyer Binotron 27, and um beautiful instrument but it was a little heavy and it just didn't work well for me at that time and part of it too is i didn't have a good eyepiece uh, selection to support it um and then i eventually settled on the zeiss ones but um if you're starting out uh what i would say first of all is don't necessarily judge the experience if you look through one of your friends bino viewers uh, Chris, I know it sounds like you had a really good experience uh, when you look through somebody else's, oh, yeah. but if you do that and it's great, that's awesome. Uh, if you do that and it's not great, don't necessarily write off bino viewing um, because setting up a bino viewer can be pretty personal based on a person's uh, uh, IPD or inter, uh, what's, what does that stand for? Uh, Interpupillary distance, the distance it, between yeah. the centers of your pupils. <laughs> Yeah. So, you know, that's a big part of bino viewing. Um, and then you also have to tune the bino viewer, uh, like for diopter adjustments. So, you know, depending on all of that, it may work for you or it may not. So, you know, don't, don't get discouraged if at first it doesn't, you know, uh, seem to, you know, be beneficial to you. Mm -hmm. Um, so if you do get a bino viewer, definitely spend some time setting it up because that, that is important. Get all of those adjustments, right. Um, you know, good bino viewers to start with probably the, like the cheaper one, like, uh, I mentioned the William optic is a good entry level one. Um, the other one, and, and again, this is, this is not a, a part of the hobby that's, uh, at, in any way inexpensive. Um, but another real good one would be that Bader max bright too. Now, one other thing with bino viewing that I think probably is the biggest complaint people have uh, and the biggest reason why they don't bino view is a lot of people cannot, I shouldn't say a lot, some people cannot merge the images. So you're looking at something through the bino viewer and you're seeing two Jupiters or two of the same star. And uh, what that typically means is the uh, bino viewers are not collimated. And a lot of bino viewers can't be collimated. So if they get knocked out, that's it. Um, there's nothing you can really do. Um, so the Zeiss ones that I have, you can collimate them. Uh, the Dankmeyer Binotron 27s, uh, you can collimate those as well. Um, and I'm not sure about all of the other ones that are out there, but it's, it's a factor to consider. Um, having the ability to collimate your bino viewer is a big, big plus. 
Um, now, if you can't merge the image images, uh, collimation certainly is one aspect that you need to check. Uh, but other things would be the IPD adjustment, uh, the diopter adjustment, or even if you're not viewing at a basically a 90 degree angle, like you need to be kind of um, looking straight through the eyepieces. If you're looking through the bino viewer and you're not you're not uh, kind of um, like if your head's at an angle and you're sort of looking through the bino viewer at an angle, that can sometimes cause merging issues hmm. too. Hmm. Well, and well, that, and it never really, yeah, it never really hooked me until my third attempt with the Zeisses and it just all came together. Um, it, it really, it really worked well for me there. Okay. Anything else uh, that people should know or to, or to add to the show? Yeah. Um, it, it can be a little daunting. Again, price is, is a pretty big factor here. Um, and you know, if you start with plossels or even end with plossels, um, you know, that helps keep costs down. Um, for me, it's something now that I, I just don't think I'll really do much mono viewing anymore. Um, it is just that much of a game changer for me. The, the one thing that I am interested in though, is still a binoscope. Uh, the advantage of the binoscope is you're getting a hundred percent of the light through to each of your eyes. And then depending on the binoscope, sometimes you can, uh, use two inch eyepieces depending on, you know, the focuser or the diagonal. And, uh, that could be a big benefit as well. Um, and some folks make their own binoscopes. Uh, you know, if you do some internet searches, uh, there's some real interesting ones using big daubs. And, uh, you know, I can only imagine what the views are like through those binoscopes. And, um, you know, another big advantage of a binoscope, again, you, it, the, the estimate here varies on the person, but there's, um, uh, there's an aperture gain without actually having a physically bigger telescope. And when you're using two eyes binoscoping, um, there's estimates out there that you're basically getting a 40 to 60% increase in aperture in terms of how the image is presented. Mm -hmm. So, you know, for example, if you're using say, uh, I don't know, uh, we'll go big here an 18 inch daub, um, and you know, mono viewing with that is one thing. Um, but if you, if you binoscope your 18 inch daub, which some people have done, it's not out of the realm of uh, possibility. Um, you can get performance out of that. That would be, uh, the exact same as say a 25 inch daub. Um, so kind of intriguing, uh, you can get some, you know, real big aperture performance out of a smaller binoscope. Um, the one that interests me a little bit is the APM 150 millimeter binoscopes. Uh, they're quite large, but, uh, you know, they are refractors and, um, you know, having something like that, um, would be quite amazing because, you know, you're, you've got sort of the, it's not really the form factor of a 150 because you got two of them, but you're really getting performance that you would get mono viewing with a 210 millimeter, uh, refractor, which. It's pretty cool. Nice. All right. Anything else that uh, we should cover for people who are looking to get started with bino viewers, or maybe people that have already been bino viewing for a while? Yeah, um, I don't think there's much more to add. Um, certainly, if there's questions, please write us. I'll, I'll do my best to answer them. Um, yeah, it's just something that works really well for me, and it you know it's not just for planetary and and the moon. You know, a lot of things that you'll read initially, people discount 
vinyl viewers um, for Deep Sky because of that, a little bit of that light loss. Um, I'll just say that they work great under uh, deep, like under dark skies for deep sky observing. Um, yes, they they are. Uh, there's a little bit less light than what you would be getting with mono viewing, but I think you make up for that with your ability to resolve more contrast, more detail. Um, and the other thing you do as a bino viewer, um, instead of looking at that galaxy, uh, say at 50 times, maybe you knock it down to 35 times or 40 times magnification, and you're essentially getting the same amount of brightness now into your eye. And I think that the image scale factor that I talked about earlier kind of makes up for the, the loss of magnification. So there's ways to overcome some of that light loss and have a very similar, uh, view just with far more comfort. And again, in, in my mind, an ability to resolve more detail. Nice. Good stuff. Yeah, they're, they're really neat devices. I've looked through probably half a dozen over the years. And I, it, the, the bug never really bit so much with me. I think because I really like the super, super wide field of views. I got pretty close to buying a binoscope myself a few times. But uh, again, never really bit the bullet because of some of the drawbacks like you say but uh maybe one day we'll see yeah yeah it's uh it's a fun part to consider for the hobby and it's one that doesn't get a lot of attention i think largely due to the price i think when people see what the price is it's often thought well i could buy another telescope for that amount of money and yeah and that's very true and and you know it certainly is a, a big factor uh in in this whole decision yeah, very good. Well, thanks for for doing this, Shane. Uh, really interesting to kind of get this down. We've we, you've mentioned Bino viewers a lot, and finally, I thought, huh, we should do a show on this. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm glad we did. <laughs> good stuff. I uh, got to give a shout out to Mark Radici. You mentioned him earlier, but uh, last weekend, Mark took some time and did a Zoom session with me. We didn't record anything. It was just a, a friendly conversation about uh, observatories because he did some measuring. Uh, of his setup because my observatory is very much in, inspired by his. He's the person who really got me off the fence in uh, into uh, having an observatory built. Uh, very similar to his. Mine is the same size as his, has the same wheels, a lot of the other same functionality, and I'm probably going to have very similar telescope set up in mine eventually. And I wanted to get the measurements from his telescope so that that telescope would eventually fit in this observatory. And then as well, he provided some uh, emotional support for some of the uh, challenges that, that we've been going through on my observatory. <laughs> so it was uh, always great. And, and I think that's one of the things, one of the neat things about doing this podcast, at least for me, Shane, anyway, has been uh, just connecting with other amateur astronomers. And it's really moved my astronomy along in, in this direction. I, I'm pretty sure I probably uh, wouldn't be having an observatory built right now if uh, we hadn't done the show because it really helped to focus where I want to be going with my own astronomy and uh, maybe much like with uh, with your bino viewing and uh, some of the other things you've you've been involved in. It really kind of gets you thinking about what you're doing and why and, and where you want to be going. And then just being able to talk about it uh, together, you and I, or with guests, or even just to be communicating it with, uh, with other amateurs out there really sort of helps form and solidify some of the ideas, I think, that, that we're having with our own astronomy. It's very uh, therapeutic and helpful. 
Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, always love the connections that we make through the show and hopefully we'll make a lot more. Dear listeners, please subscribe and do us the favor and share the show with other stargazers you know. Thanks for listening. And you can always send us your show ideas, observations, and questions to actualastronomy at gmail.com. Almost sounds like that's recording, but it's not. Thank you, everyone, for listening, and we hope you enjoyed the show. If you are interested in more information, would like to contact us, or if you would like to support the podcast, check out our website, actualastronomy.com. <laughs>